is a like a verse. Or no, it's the chorus. Light after darkness, that is the way. And I was just thinking, yep, that's kind of, you know, you have these dark periods. People are like, what the hell? And then, and I hope, I don't know, because this is a dark period, especially for, you know, for the environment. This is, this is So here we are doing the Floridiana podcast. <laughs> yeah. So how you doing? My yeah. name's Andre. My name is Mike Lagsy. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Ten seconds in. We were talking earlier. You were talking earlier about the difficulty of doing this podcast, this particular one, not just the podcast overall, or was it just particularly this one? Um, well, they've all been pretty difficult, mainly because um, we don't have any deadline. Yeah, and, uh, that makes a big difference. And that makes a huge difference because you can procrastinate all you want. Nobody's really waiting for this. Nobody's waiting to get their hot little hands on it. So I think that... People might be waiting, but nobody's paying. Right. <laughs> and so when you don't have a deadline and you're just basically doing, um, shall I call it a passion project? Right. Um, I think you can relate to this, Mike, that, uh, you know, those deadlines come and go, the, the ones you set for yourself. Yep. And... Um, and then also, I did this interview uh, right around the time Trump got elected, and uh, I feel like I was a little despondent. I did an interview with Neil Armandjohn, who is a longtime environmental advocate, and as he says in, in the interview, you know, this is a dark time. This is a dark time for, you know, for environmental activ- activism, and... Uh, it actually ended up being kind of the linchpin of the whole thing in my mind of, of, of just sort of like what we talked about. Because it is, it is about the, you know, the, the darkness before the light. And it's about sort of, um, you know, hanging on through the dark times. And those are sort of some of the themes. But mainly, we, you know, we talk about how he got into um, environmental, uh, not just doing environmental science, but kind of went from environmental science to environmental activism. And mm. then kind of made a career out of that. Neil Armandjohn was the St. John's Riverkeeper from 2003 to, you know, sort of some time. I mean, I think he he did it for 15 years or so. so. And then um, transitioned into a job as the Matanzas Riverkeeper and and shortly after that retired. So right around that time is when we did this interview as he was sort of transitioning out. So let's do a little um, introduction. Um, Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is the Floridiana Podcast. I'm Andre Delena. I'm Mike Lagasse. And um, we're doing this in kind of a, a new way. In the past, I've done this on my own and, you know, basically cut together the interview and written the voiceover and stuff like that. And Mike does all the great music. And so um, this time around, we kind of decided we'd do it a little bit different. We're actually in his garage hanging out. If you hear any extraneous sounds or people in the background or cars going by or anything like that, it's because of that. The other thing I wanted to drop in there before we start is that um, the interview took place at like where the at the Matanzas Riverkeeper's office at Ganung's Fish Camp in Crescent Beach so um, there is some rain and thunder in the background and stuff like that that's just in there <clears throat> we literally uh, met Neil as a storm was sort of rolling across the the Matanzas River towards Ganung's and if uh, if anybody listening to this has never been to Ganung's you should go. It's a cool spot of old Florida. It's a really cool spot, and the the whole storm situation sounds like it 
may have been a natural foreshadowing for some of your conversation. Right. And maybe even your mood after the conversation. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) some of my observations, if you never, if you never met Neil, he looks like your, your, your straight up average white guy, except for, (laughs) except for the long ponytail, the crazy clothes, the, the long beard. Yeah. The long beard or strange facial hair. My impression of him was he's like he's like all of our uncle, you know. He's like, every he's, everybody's got an uncle like Neil yeah. Armstrong, I think. I and, was, and in some alternate reality, he could he would have been the the Bubba driving big, you know, big equipment, putting up thousands of houses and stuff like that in 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 this part of Florida or Louisiana or wherever you know could have gone places. Either way. Yeah, I think that's how I feel. It's like it could have gone either way. Yeah. yeah, you'll hear about sort of the progression of his career. And how he ended up doing what he was doing, and that's it. That's sort of his inspiration, that, as I recall, too, yeah, right? Right, 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 right. So I've heard little um, bits. I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Right. So we're going to check out for a little while. That's going to be the format of this. So we're going to check out for a little while. We're going to listen to Neil talk for a little while, and uh, you'll hear from us later on. You know, I've made this huge turn. I'm not going to run a clothing store. I'm going to go to work for the USGL. Geological Survey, and I started being out. I was it was really a cool job. I would be out in the field sometimes three, four, almost four weeks out of the a month. I would be out sometimes, most of the time by myself, and so I was around the natural world, and I could see the natural world um, kind of declining. This was at one of the heights of. Um, strip mining in Alabama. And we did all these projects um, and it was just incredible. You know, we were measuring sediment coming out of these coal mines and you couldn't even measure it because it was so, it would just be mud. You you know, you were quote to measure the sediment in the sampling thing. So that kind of got me thinking about it. And then I just met, I've been really blessed to work with people uh, Mavine, who had a huge, huge impact on my life. And then uh, there was a woman in North Carolina with many people. But, you know, Andre, I've, I've met with, I've worked with people who've given their lives for this work, R- literally, figured, not figuratively, literally. They just, they put everything into it and it just took them. But, you know, there are remarkable people who don't do this, quote, for a living. They just do it because they love it. Um, and you know there are people like that here in this community who've been fighting these battles for 25 years and they've never gotten a dime I mean they're not you're not getting rich as a river keeper but you're making a living you know there are people that do what I do and help me do what I do just because they believe in the work and they believe in saving something you know, it was a really great job. I did it for 10 years, and um, I kind of had a reawakening when I was here. You know, I always told people I spent a lot of time documenting the decline of the water resources of the southeastern United States, and um, just decided, it, you know, I you know, it's quote a government job. So that, you know, everybody, like, good God, man, you got the government job. You just ride it out, and at the end, you get your pension, and that's it. And uh, I just, it just never appealed to me. 
And one of the things that changed my life is I uh, met a woman here, Maveen Betch. I don't know if the beach lady. If you have you ever heard of her. Yeah, I'm familiar. I do know that name. How, how do I? She was just this incredible, iconic person. Her grandfather started the first African-American life insurance company in the U.S. And he started something called, have you ever heard of American Beach up in New Fernandina? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was her, that was her um, beach. And, and kind of ironically, there's a connection here. Butler Beach was a similar beach where African Americans could, quote, go to the beach because all the beaches were segregated. But Maveen was the first person I met who kind of had a uh, environmental ethic, so to speak. I went to a sea turtle meeting in Neptune Beach, and there was this woman who had giant fingernails and her hair in a bun like a papoose and at the end of the meeting she said you know baby I need a ride like back to town I'm like yeah okay and we just became friends and um, she kind of changed my whole way of thinking this is an interesting time I think to break in here um, when I went to interview him Mike my, my I really couldn't I, you know other than just sort of wanting to meet him and, uh, you know, he's somebody I had always kind of heard about as this environmentalist and advocate and stuff. And, and um, But I was thinking a lot about, you know, at the time I was thinking a lot about winning and losing. And uh, because of, you know, Trump being elected and, and the sort of contentiousness of that, but also a more sort of uh, conservative, regressive environmental policy is ushering in. Mm -hmm. Initially, my questions to him were like, you know, what does a win look like? How do you determine winning and losing? What does it feel like to lose a lot? Because my assumption, you know, of course, is that, and I think I'm, you know, correct, is that the environment typically loses out. You know, when, when you're talking about the, the competition between environment and development, especially here in Florida. You know, now I think back on that, and um, I think that was kind of a lame way to sort of come at it. <laughs> Well, I think what you're saying is you came to meet Neil and you didn't really have a, you didn't know what footing you were going to have when you started talking necessarily, but you did have the weight of however current politics and culture was affecting you. So of course there's that, but we started out actually, you know, talking about his career and how he got into environmentalism. Um, but more importantly, sort of not just how he got into the environment or what was interesting about that to him or, you know, how it sort of molded his career path, but like how he became, how he went from being sort of a scientist who was just sort of studying the environment. So anybody out there who's listening to this, if you want to know sort of the specifics of Neil Armandjohn's CV of education, you know, and stuff like that, you can look all that stuff up. The, uh, the St. John's Riverkeeper has some stuff about him. The internet is your friend, but... Uh, so suffice it to say, just to sort of catch people up on this, um, he was born in Louisiana, um, raised up in a not particularly um, sort of environmentally conscious or progressive household, but, you know, had a normal, a normal uh, adolescence and childhood and all that. Right. I guess his father was a, um, owned a clothing store. So and that's what he uh, says in the early, he says, 
I'm not going to sell clothes. I'm going to work for the USGS. Right. right. And so that that's sort of the context for that. Okay. Um, so he ends up going, you know, going to school, um, studying science, biology, and, and uh, environmental science, and then uh, after college goes to work for the U.S. Geologic Service, and that is sort of the scientific arm of the U.S. government, the federal government, that goes around and does all of this sort of big environmental testing. And so that's what he's talking about there when he's, he's talking about just doing the science. When he, when he talks about that, you know, he had this long career that was, that was anchored in doing scientific research, testing the resilience of the environment and stuff like that. So I think that was one of the things that really made him a uh, you know, unique person for this riverkeeper position is that you know the river keeper is an advocate for the river, but you need someone who also understands the science, absolutely, and, and not just the science, and, but also like the ins and outs of the law and, and things like that. So it's like this sort of multifaceted, yeah, well, position. I've, I've seen him in action many times at a public meeting and whatnot, and he was very competent in talking to not only commissioners in the sense of your policy, your policymaker. This is. You know what I mean? This is a way for you to understand it. But he was able to speak in scientific terms in a way that a policymaker could understand it, the layman could understand it, but that scientists would still agree that totally makes sense. You know what I mean? Right, like right. this guy knows this guy knows what he's doing. And so that that is a huge thing because you can't have just an like a combative um, emotional argument and expect to win as much as you want to win in those types of settings, you know, right. in like the stodgy bureaucratic setting. Yeah. So we ended up talking about that, that sort of first stage of his, um, of his career. And so then the, the natural sort of next question for me was like, how did you go from being you know, sort of a pure scientist, just sort of documenting what's going on to an advocate, an environmental advocate, you know, for mm-hmm. all the things that the Riverkeeper advocates for. And that's an inspiring story. Well, it's an interesting story, but so here's what I think is interesting is that he doesn't really talk about himself that much. He talks about the example of the people that that he worked with and the people that were doing that kind of activism, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of around him. And so we end up talking a bit about Maveen Betch um, uh, as an example of one of those now... uh, we don't we don't really play play this sort of part of the interview, but he he talked he didn't just talk about her. She was just the most local and most colorful person mm-hmm. that she that he talked about that was you know an uh, an influence on his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you uh, so anybody out there in podcast land? If you're listening to this, I'm not originally from Florida. I'm you know I moved here about 20 years ago um, from East Tennessee. I have a deeper history with Florida than that, but. Um, for the sake of brevity, we won't get into it. But you've lived here all your life, Mike, and I wanted to know, uh, what do you know about Maveen Betch? Nothing, Any, anything is, at all? This is my... Atlantic is my, Beach and all that? Yeah, it's not really... It no. wasn't in my um, focus, but if I could go off of that for a second, with what you were talking about with <laughs> how Neil um, worked in the field and then was inspired to step kind of out of the field and then into a critical role, you know, like a role of critique of the field in some ways all I could think about was it sounds like Maveen Betch was a person who he felt whether or not she said it or not he felt held him accountable like kind of like recognized that he had a belief system and said that's cool that you have this job but you're accountable to yourself and to your neighbor and to 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that's a, that's what makes those turning points. You know, it's not, it's not always, uh, like he said, you're not doing this for even at USGS. You know, like you're making a living, but you're not saving the world, but um, or making a million dollars. But like to make that kind of decision, like it's not a, um, it takes somebody to kind of demonstrate that that way for you. It sounds like she was. Right pretty inspiring person to be around yeah and just so i can kind of speak to that like she is not she really is not the only one he credits with that mm -hmm. there are other people and and he actually worked in environmental activism in other states i if memory serves north carolina and louisiana and stuff like that and he mm -hmm. refers to some of that in the interview mm -hmm. you know if you can sort of listen and pick up on that but um so I, anyway i just we're just checking in here this is going to be the format of this podcast is we're, we're kind of checking in here uh, um, and we're going to listen to a little bit more about Mavine and, and Neil and just his sort of journey from scientist to, to environmental activist. And, yeah. and there'll be some about um, what it's like to lose all the time. Do you know about Nana? There's this, one of the largest sand dunes on the East Coast, and, and Mavin called it Nana. It's an African, like the mother or something. And so right next to American Beach is the plantation, Amelia Island. So for years, this guy Jack, I forget Jack's name, wanted, I mean, he coveted American Beach. And there are black families there who've lived there for 60 years. I mean... It was where you could live the American dream if you were an African-American. So Jack, he would leverage a few, but Mavine kept, she was the glue that held that community together. Even though her, there's no way to even describe her. She, her hair, she never cut her hair. So literally she had one natty dread, okay? One, I mean, her whole hair was a one giant natty dread that, See if it's in this picture. I've got okay. You see that bundle with all those? That's her hair. So she carried it like a papoose. And then, okay, you see that plastic bag right there? Her fingernails were curled. I mean, they were like that long. So she kept them in a plastic bag. She had one hand that didn't. And then, and so kids were just, it was like arriving with a strange rock star. But she was unbelievable. Here's my favorite. So one day we were at a meeting. I think I had come home and there was something. And anyway, Mavine, was, we were at a, like the Fernandina, I mean, Nassau County or something. And Jack, they were trying to rezone and he wanted Nana. He wanted that sand dude. He wanted all of that. And she looked at him and said, if you destroy Nana. I will haunt you in your dreams the rest of your life into the netherworld. I mean, something, I, I'm paraphrasing. And I swear to God, that changed that guy's life because soon after that, the Trust for Public Lands, they negotiated and they bought Nana. No, Somehow he owned it or something. Anyway, they negotiated the sale and transferred it to the National Park Service. It's part of, Nana is now part of the Tomoka National Park Service. 
So I'll never forget this. So there was a big ceremony, and Jack was there. Talking about a guy that looked uncomfortable. So we're all there. But Marvine told us, her name was Marvine. I forgot that part. It was M-A-R-V-E-N-E. When Ronald Reagan was elected president, she was so disgusted, she took the R out of her name. Changed it to Marvine. Her sister was... Uh, head of spell. Her sister was one of the most a premier African American scholars. She was the president of Spelman College and and a couple of other, maybe I think uh, Brown or one other Ivy League. Mavine was an opera singer in Europe, very famous opera singer, and she would do scat sometimes. This crazy scat. Look <laughs> at this. This ceremony, she mentioned the thing about Jack that when she said, "You know, Jack," and you, and she just kind of got down right with him and said, "And you knew I was telling you the truth," and so Nana is saved. And what is a well? I mean, other than just interesting and entertaining, what what did you take away from all of that of, of her? Oh, that you you know she kind of convinced me, uh, you know, I, I had no idea what an environmental ethic was or any of that. I, you know, I was disenchanted. Um, the thing that kind of tipped the scales for me, you know what Fort George Island is? There's an old golf course and it was kind of just this lazy, um, just very small, limited, and this big development com- company wanted to turn it into um, like Hilton Head. So the USGS, we did a pump test out there where we stressed the aquifer. I mean, it was to see how much water and how much, um, how many people they could put out there, in effect. And so I remember that night we were out there and I was just thinking, you know, this is fucked up. I'd already kind of seen the writing on the wall, but I remember after that, after that pump test, I had um, talked to Marvine about it, and she said, "You know, baby, you ought to just you ought to tell people about that pump test and how there's not enough water." And it was just my awakening that you know what, just doing the science, sitting out there, a pump test, you you pump an aquifer a certain amount for a certain amount of hours, and then you measure the the Recharge. In other words, you spend 24 hours after the fact measuring how quickly the aquifer returns, and you can, based on all that, you then determine how much drinking water you can pump without hurting it. But that was kind of the beginning of the end, because then I realized, you know, you're not science is not going to save us, and I I could do more. You know, I, I'm not. You know, I was in effect part of what was going on. And then soon after that, I just decided, you know, I'm done. I'm quitting. She was something. God, man, she was something. So she she totally, I mean, she changed my life. I always think if I hadn't have gone to that sea turtle program, what my life would have been. I, I might have just, hell, I might have been sitting back collecting my big old government pension thinking I had it made. But I didn't. And so, you know, my whole life changed with that meeting at the Sea Turtle, among other things. But she was the real 
that was the beginning of a whole metamorphosis of my life, really. That's why I'm sitting here through her and other people, but first and foremost, my being Betch. Well, it's kind of ironic. I This is my 28th year working for environmental groups. And the first, one of the first projects I ever uh, was involved with is was stopping offshore drilling off the Outer Banks. And so the group I was working with was North Carolina Coastal Federation. And so I was new, and, and so that was really the project that we worked on. And almost 28 years later, we're still fighting offshore drilling. You know, a friend of mine always says, you're a champion of lost causes. Because um, if you kind of look at it, I guess, logically, you could say that. So why? Like, why do I do it? Yeah, like why, <laughs> what keeps you going then, I guess, would be the, um, the question. You know, the flip side of fighting offshore drilling, we stopped it, you know, uh, like at the end of last year, uh, seismic air blasting, which is just a hideous thing, had, had been stopped. And then there was a five-year moratorium on offshore drilling. And, you know, Trump has reversed all of that. And But, you know, I think the good thing that came out of that is still happening. You know, even this county, which is very conservative, very, very conservative. You know, St. John's County and, well, St. Augustine was probably one of the first, maybe the first city that signed on to say we don't want to offshore drilling or blasting. And then the county did. And the county actually said we don't want offshore drilling. So, you know, that's pretty remarkable for a pretty conservative Republican area to say we don't want this. Um, but yeah, it, you know, here's, I tell you, an easy, a harder lift here is uh, there's a development. You probably, if you came down 206, you went by this place called Lakewood Point, which is a loss for us. I mean, all of us, a group of us, um, because that was just a piece of property. The guy could have put 34 homes, but that wasn't enough, okay? He needed 78 so he needed really twice what the land would support and that you know you go before the county commission on that and they don't understand that Lakewood Point goes to Hidden Creek which goes to Moses Creek which goes to the river just upstream of the oyster beds and maybe even if they do get it those are the you know you're not gonna you get very little support to stop development in St. John's County, or Flagler. You know, Lakewood Point, I think the thing that people could learn from that, it was zoned for a certain number of homes. And all of the groups, you know, the neighborhood groups, people across the street, we all kind of met with the developer and said, okay, you know, we can live with this. If you can kind of reduce uh, you know, you don't maybe use some native plants, leave some buffers between where the stormwater runs off. But, you know, that was never a point of contention for, for the developer. It was just like, hell no. I've run my numbers. I need 78 homes. So you, if you can stop us, stop us. And 
Sadly, we couldn't. If you go over there, they're building the hell out of homes and they're going to build 78 homes. We don't fight every development because it's pointless. You know, there are certain ones like uh, King's Grant, which is a big development on 206. That's a thousand homes that you try to fight that because that has substance. And, you know, precedence is very big here, you know. So on 206, somebody's going to look at what happened at Lakewood Point and think, hey, that's what I want. And, and what's the county going to say? I guess one of the big disappointments for me from a career stance is I would have thought through the, that kind of almost three decades of work that the, the environment, anytime there is a poll asking people, what are you worried about or what are, what are the issues, the environment never seems to get above maybe 10, 15%. I just saw something recently, yesterday maybe, it showed the difference between what the media is focusing on and what, you know, citizens are. And the only thing that wasn't really, you know, the, the Russian thing was way off to the, you know, the media is all fixated. But the thing that was literally the same exact focus and interest was the environment. 10%, the, the media focuses 10% on the environment and 10% of the people care about the environment. But, you know, I was like, God, 10%, geez. So one out of 10, if I walked up to 10 people, one would say, you're doing a good job. Probably five would say, you're crazy as hell. Uh, the other people like, hey, what, what's the problem? Yeah. And so I, you know, I'm part of, I think what I like to think about is just moving the whole thing forward. I had a friend um, who was in Washington and I would go up there and I'm like, oh my God, how are you doing this? And then she said to me one night, we were drinking beer, which is what you do when you go to Washington. You're just like, oh God. But she said, you know, Neil, we're the resistance fighters. And there's always going to, you know, you just kind of look at it. We're holding on until something bigger comes. And I'm still, I mean, we're there. Something bigger has come, but it's not big enough, I guess is how it. And so I don't, consider that a failure. I consider it, um, well, to quote Sunvolt again, light after darkness, that's, that is the way. I mean, that's how it happens. And I've kind of in this point in my career think it's going to take something pretty dramatic to get more than 10% of the people caring about this. This is the portion of the podcast where we get into you know, I ask him about the winning and the losing, and I think he makes a good point here. In Florida, if you're fighting development, you're going to be losing a lot. Um, I mean, anywhere really, but yeah, it's right. And and so I think, and what that naturally led to is, I think actually, what is at the heart of this interview, which is that it's not about the winning and the losing; it's about advancing your cause. Planting a flag, setting a marker or something like that and holding that until the next sort of generation comes along. And when he talks about seismic blasting and, you know, how he fought it off and now it's back with the Trump administration, offshore oil well, you know, drilling and stuff like that. I think he's in the same position as a lot of people who believe the same way that, the, you know, that the environment 
deserves uh, some, you know, some sort of protection and respect. Maybe a reprieve. A reprieve <laughs> from, you know, the massive human overdevelopment. And, you know, that, 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 that sentiment, it comes and goes. It comes in and out, you know, sort of like the tide in a sense. And yeah, the, the, what, what you have to do is you have to, you have to hold a position, wait for reinforcements, and then hopefully inspire the next generation to move on. And, and that's, you know, when you hear him talking about the, you know, it's not the small, it's not the actual battles themselves that you fight and you win and or lose. It's the fact that's, that not that many people really care, you know, in, in polls, 10%, you know, put, you know, rank the environment and the health of the environment as, as, you know, a top priority, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was kind of funny when he says, yeah, you know, that means like, if I meet 10 people, one of them is going to be like, yeah, doing, you're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd say this. The, the short way of saying what you're saying is it's a long game. And uh, you have to strategize and have persistence and commitment, right? And that's the hard part to get people to really rally around the idea of like, oh, if you, like if you lost the battle in the neighborhood next to your house, you might just be like, there's nothing I can do. Like if that's if that's how you come into it right what are we fighting for here right but for somebody who can have the perspective of like a regional perspective like this guy who's worked in all these different states and seen all these little victories and all these little defeats it's inspiring for me to hear it from that side whether it's environmental activism or anything like like play that long game because you know you've got more than this battle there's always another one tomorrow you know not even like having the war analogy as much because it's it's really like an, it's this effort is really what you're talking about, you know, and it's persistent happens, effort, persistent effort, consistent effort, and it's also an education. So if you have only have ten percent of your people backing you up, some might say in a democracy, well then you're doing the you're fighting the wrong battle. But if you know in every um, situation there's um, there's a majority and minority, and um, the minority almost always feels the need to educate the majority so that they'll at least understand their point of view, right? And so, I mean, that's what his role has always been, has been educating, like I said before, like talking to policyholders, explaining to them in a way that they can understand while, you know, keeping the science straight and that sort of thing. So, right. um, it's I think it's kind of um, remarkable to have that long view and to play that long game. Yeah. You know, it's remarkable that effort that he has put in and that's part of what makes him a good leader probably you know or a good candidate to have this kind of a position is that you know someone who can have that long perspective who has had a long sort of career doing those kind of things um and i'm not gonna lie to you i'm just gonna interrupt you real quick having a slight southern accent doing it down here i'll guarantee you that open doors for him that other in other cases it might not have right having a little, little bit of a southern draw doing the work he's doing down here has at least let him talk to people that might shut him down otherwise just from yeah. some weird geological prejudice right. or geographic yeah. prejudice I should that, say that's an interesting <laughs> that's an interesting point and to my earlier comments which is you know he looks like your average white dude you know around here you know just <laughs> you, you wouldn't really pick him out of the crowd as like oh that's that's the the, the hippie environmentalist you know mm-hmm. um and uh, and I think you know. Well, I, he could be he could he could be the crazy biker or the right or the yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the... <laughs> so anyway, like I said, I I thought that was a good a good place to break and kind of regroup here. And I think throughout the rest of the interview, you're going to see a lot of this sort of same theme of 
what does winning and losing look like? How do you fight these battles? And then how do you persevere? Yeah, I think that's the most important thing that I got out of this, which is you have to persevere. I'm inspired so far, so let's listen to the rest and see what else he's got to say. I am concerned that we're running out of time to solely work on education, personally. Uh, that's not to say I, I don't think it's important. I, I'm not, you know, I think you've got to just say, hell no, we're not, we're not going to allow this. For whatever that means, it may not be the ultimate answer, but, you know, resistance, that's what I tell people. you got to resist. you got to resist hopelessness. you got to resist you feel like you have no power. So, you know, I am still grappling with, you know, especially as a single person, how do we balance the need for education versus just the resistance movement of hell no, you know, we need to fight seismic blasting, we need to go to rallies, we need to demonstrate, we need to, if, if it comes down to it more, then we need to do more. And that's not always popular. You know, we're, we're, we're dependent on the community for our job, for our budget. Um, some people don't like donating money to sue people, frankly. That's just a, that's a fact. Um, you know, there's this certain people think all you need to do is sit down and work it out. And I believe that to a certain point, but, you know, some of the people we deal with are just bad people. Frankly, they don't give a damn. They're not going to work it out. You know, they have the power. It's kind of like, okay, just meet with the developers and tell us what you want. And then why do you always come at the last minute and say, so Lakewood Point, back to that, we were talking about hours ago, there's a perfect example. Hey, build 34 homes and let's all sing Kumbaya and go home. Oh, hell no. So it was just a battle to the end, and the guy had more resources and won, period. And now he's putting up crap homes. And but you know what? People are buying those homes. Yeah, they're snapping them up, that's for sure. Yeah, and so is it, is it judgmental for me to say, why are you living here? Because they want to live on 206, they want to live close to the river, and they want to live close to the ocean. Well, Walter and I, when we were at Lakewood Point, I busted them settlement control and Walter and I went up there and Walter of course had his camera so we were shooting these photos and these guys I'm starting to say these bubbas these guys who were on all this equipment they just stopped came over there and uh, said what are y'all doing I'm like well we're uh, seeing if you have your settlement control and you don't obviously so I'm going to call the county and Oh, you're the guy that's been calling. Like, well, yeah. Like, who are you? So I told him I'm the Riverkeeper. Well, what the hell do you know? Where are you from? And I said, well, I know, this is what I know. That's Hidden Creek. Because he said, I've lived here my whole life. I said, well, that's Hidden Creek, right? Yeah. That goes to Moses Creek. Yeah. And where does that go? To the river. So if you pollute Hidden Creek, well, you do know something. But then they, and so he kind of turned, but he kept telling Walter, you guys are not going to change any of this. It's coming. I used to go down the road and know everybody on the road. And that's not the way it is. So you guys, you care more about trees than you care about people. You care about us. And 
I just told Walter, well, and then Walter, Walter gets all kind of pissed off. Like, come on, Walter, let's go. And you ain't gonna work it out here on the side of 206. Um, but there it is, in a nutshell. Uh, you know, I've lived here my whole life. It's done, I'm gonna make my money. I drive equipment. If I don't drive heavy equipment, I don't make any money. You know, without development, you don't drive it. I mean, it's... I wanted to break in here because I think that this idea... So I come across this idea. I don't want to talk too much about my work because it, whatever. But I come across this all the time. And honestly, I have been that guy who... I grew up around here, so I somehow know more about some topic than you do. And your place, the where you grew up, does not have any bearing on your knowledge, you know, but also often people use that as some sort of like shorthand for wisdom that doesn't really exist. And it's just an excuse to not think and it's an excuse to not, um, I guess not think, but not, not to not think, but not to think deeply, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. um, about an issue and to not really be open to someone's argument. And so, in essence, sort of avoid responsibility. Right, and it goes right along with that idea that I said earlier about the southern accent, like opening doors. Like, people get upset because you give a crap about something, and it just inspires me more that he just keeps going. He keeps going. Right. You know, like like I would be. I don't know that I have that. I think I probably do actually, but I don't. I don't know how to access that well of continuing to give a shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. I think we all face the same, you know, sort of thing. You know, he, he's a professional environmental advocate. Mm -hmm. You and I are just folks mm -hmm. uh, working, you know, working for a living and, and yeah. just trying to get by and, mm -hmm. you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that's an interesting observation. Uh, I think you're right. You know, wherever you're from doesn't entitle you or doesn't you know, doesn't automatically make you knowledgeable about certain things. It doesn't you know? pre-program you to understand turbidity and total suspended solids. Can <laughs> <laughs> you get all sciencey on you us? Know? Is that it? Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. like, like, just because you grew up here doesn't mean... Anyway, so my first job out of college was up in the mountains of North Carolina. And our my gig was going door-to-door -door in rural, underserved areas of North Carolina. Places that hadn't had a septic tank installed or inspected in generations in some cases. And so, or at least on the books. And so our, our job was knocking on the door saying, hey, I'm here with the state. I'm here to help. Um, that's the joke, of course. Right, but yeah. Knocking, and the we Reagan asked, nightmare. Hey, yeah. we, you know, we were just doing a septic tank inspection. Can we check and see where your septic tank is? Oh, sure. Most people don't know where the septic tank is. It doesn't matter to them. And we would uh, investigate and find many times that there was no septic tank. So, and then we'd say, hey, do you mind? Since we couldn't find the septic tank, can we go put some dye like in your toilets and in your showers and run them, kitchen sink? And uh, see if any colors come out of the ground or into the river. <laughs> see where the where all this effort right. is and going. So, yeah. <laughs> and so we would do that, and not more often than not, thank, thankfully, but occasionally, we would have a red creek. Like all of a sudden, the creek would be flowing red. Uh, and so then we'd say, well, we put red in the kitchen sink, blue in the toilet, and yellow or whatever in the other thing, so we'd know which implement it was. Uh, yeah. And so then we'd go and talk to people, and they'd say, well. That doesn't matter. That's how we've always done. We've always put our shit in the creek. And, you know, like, that's how my daddy did it and his daddy did it. Right. And, you know, the, the real answer to that is that's cool. You grew up here and that's how you've always done it. But there's now, like, 10,000 people 
living in this square mile, and there used to only be five. Right. So five people crapping in that creek didn't matter. But that's not the that's not the perspective that they were able to understand. You know, not without it having being explained. And the truth is, more often than not, once you if you engage with those people, not every time I say those people, that sounds very discriminatory. With with people who are argument arguing on that angle, you don't get them all, but you do get some occasionally. But it yeah. is incredibly like energetic. It takes a lot of like giving a crap, <laughs> you know. So again, back to I'm not trying to um, puff up Neil here, but man, what an inspiring level of effort. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of like. Oh, yeah. kind of exhausted listening to this thing. But that is interesting when you think about what he said about, you know, most of the job is education. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you know, obviously he means education as in just like letting people know, okay, this creek is connected to this creek and that creek goes into the Matanzas mm-hmm. River, you know. So there is a connection between all things, but also part of that education is just engagement, you know. Like people are defensive <clears throat> when you point out things like, they're shitting into their creek, mm-hmm. the creek on their property, you know. But I think most people, given some information, a little bit of time to cool off, would probably realize that, yeah. you know, well, that's why the coffee tastes so weird. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, when I was in, back in the early 90s and middle 90s, I was a member of the Surfrider Foundation here in St. Augustine. And one of the things that they were trying to do, and they couldn't get permission at that time is to just put a simple label on a drain that says this goes to the creek you know what i mean this right. drain goes to the ocean right. whatever you pour in here will go to the ocean. yeah right yeah. you know and we just couldn't get permission to do that but now you start seeing that around and that's the same thing it's just that like persistent education and advocacy like hey just use your brain like do you want this to be where you're swimming you know maybe maybe not you know whatever you're putting down here goes somewhere else where you might get right. to it so that education is important And you know, Andre, I, I figured this out um, years ago. Not everybody's buying what I'm selling. I mean, and you gotta just, it's not a personal thing. There's nothing you can say. I, I have said for years, and I still say now, what's best for this river is best for the community. And I've had people interrupt and say, you know, what? That's some kind of hippie shit. or. You know, that's myopic. What does that even mean? And I always tell people, hey, that's what I believe, okay? So you know where I'm coming from. Now, I'm not saying that's, you know, it, you may not believe that, but that's what I believe. I, I do believe that this river, if it's healthy, is the future of this community. Spiritually, emotionally. You go up Moses Creek, and you get back in there, and that there is a place still 10 minutes from Janons that you can get in there and hardly see any human impacts. That you can see an alligator, you can see wood storage, you can see a marsh, you can see something that's not backlit. You know, our whole world is backlit. You know, we're all looking at shit that the light's coming behind it. You know, computer screens, phones, everything we see is, is lit from behind. So when you're in nature, it's not that way. It's like, this is what it's really like. This is what everything looks like. Not what it looks like with some electronic device.
you know where North Beach is, right? You know, don't tell the people in North Beach that they're Volano. So, you know, that, like, hell no, we're North Beach. So I have a friend um, up there, Mel Longo. He lives at North Beach, and he grew up in St. Augustine when they were, like, grocery stores and stuff. But he tells me that it was something called the North Beach Boating Club. And to talk about how water quality makes a community or, in a way, destroys it. So one of the historical great oyster beds was just north of the Bolano Beach, right there at North Beach. So right there, that club would have, every Palm Sunday would have an oyster roast. And the club members would literally just go out and harvest oysters to where, you know, who, however many people went there would eat oysters. That was like a tradition, one of the biggest traditions. People from all over would come. In 1995, the state went in there and did some water quality measuring, found the bacteria counts were too high, and said, oh, wait a minute. So they conditionally closed the beds, kept screwing around, but said, you know what? We're gonna close these beds permanently, but we're gonna figure out why they're polluted and we're gonna reopen those beds. So 20 years later, I went to a meeting in 2000, I mean, in 2015, there was this oyster task force that had been assembled to figure out how do we reopen these beds? And frankly, you know what, after about two meetings, what the answer was? It's not, we're, we're never gonna open these and we better put our, our focus on the ones, the last ones we have, which are the ones down here. You know, a lot of the people that live there lived on that old dune line. So they built simple houses up, and if a hurricane came, it was a $10,000 house. Now there are these multiple $100,000 homes that have to be built up so high that we could go over and I can show you a house that's roof line is equal to the floor line of the house next to it. it it's crazy. And I, I always use that as an example. A, how quickly things, something that seems incidental can last for decades and how basically fragile all this is. This could all change overnight. I mean, if, if someone's to come in here and said, you know, there's a bacteria problem in these oyster beds, they could close them. And I, and I don't think people, we all just assume that every fall, you know, Phil Covage and the Price family are going to sell sacks of oysters. You just reserve one and you go on a Saturday and you pay whatever, 50 bucks, and you have a sack of oysters and you go to your friend's house or come to Janung's and build a fire and roast oysters and think, man, this is the best life there is. And then all that can go just overnight. And I don't say that to, to tell people, you know, we're doomed or there's no hope. We need to understand this is not, this is all so fragile. And we humans are, you know, we're the ones making it fragile. All of us. Even Janung's has a footprint. Well, I always say this is, you know, this is really the young people world. You, you got to get out. You got to get in the streets three or four nights a week to build an organization.
Um, and I try, and, and you know, we, we've come a long way, but you know, there's gonna, we need a younger person who's gonna kind of pick up the ball and, and move forward. Eventually what I would hope is we have more than a single person we have an education person or, you know, we have a lot of people that want to volunteer for us, but you need somebody to kind of figure all that out. You know, it's like, well, I need somebody to help me do that. Well, I don't want to, you know, no offense. I want to do this or, or when I need somebody, I don't have, you know, then I go, oh, I got to call. So an organization as it builds, you kind of build in the resources you need to move forward. And we will, I mean, that's what we're doing. So, you know, it's, it's honorable work, it's good work. I've been blessed. Um, you know, I've, I've had some, some really incredible victories. I've worked with people who have changed my life. If we're gonna wrap this up. Sure. What, what um, I don't know, how, how are you gonna put a bow on this? Oh, I would, you know, the best thing I would tell you is um, I've lived a, you know, I, I'm amazed that, um, you know, how blessed I've been. I mean, truly blessed to live the life, you know, how my life has played out anyway, my family and all that. But, you know, my, this third career of my life and, you know, it led me to be sitting here with you and Walter and New Orleans and... North Carolina, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Crescent Beach, you know, is all based on just my belief that I could make a difference in this world and and just belief that, you know, protecting nature is, you know, it's one of the most important things that any of us can do. I mean, it's, you know, when you think about what nature gives us what our life would be without it to to do something to help it protect it it's just it's honorable it's it's good it's frustrating um and i'm just you know i have met presidents i've met powerful people more powerful than i ever thought and um i'm just you know honored to be here really happy um and just blessed, you know. I, I, I sometimes think just talking about Malvin kind of makes all of this. I kind of go through how I ended up here, um, but you know, it was just a series of misadventures that turned out really well. I think that's an interesting way to describe it a series of misadventures that turned out really well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I, I love mean, that. I love yeah, that, man. Yeah, I love that. it is. So, yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, cool. thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you, man. It's always good. I mean, it's always kind of, it's good to reminisce. I'm at the point in my life that I, um, you know, I just, uh, it's look back. Like I said, there, I'm, there are people that have done, I, I mean, I could spend hours telling you about the people that have given everything they have, and that's what that's what it's all about. I mean, I have friends in Louisiana and North Carolina. <clears throat> I have really good friends. I mean, there are people who've supported me financially and otherwise through all of this whole ride, and God bless them, you know, because, um, you know, their belief in all the work is what makes it really 
go, honestly. People like Walter, I mean, shit, I'm here. You know, Walter is probably one of the most environmentally conscious people I know. Probably, in some ways, a lot more so than I am. And, um, you know, he tries to run, he tries to run this crazy fish camp in that way, uh, which sometimes is aggravating as hell for him. But they're, you know, they're just good people. And, and this is, it's kind of a good place. This is going to be my last, I mean, uh, you know, this is it for me. I mean, this, um, so it's a good place to end up. I've made a lot of good friends. I, you know, St. Augustine has been good to me, really. When I look back, I just kind of came down here. And I remember when I was doing, <laughs> this is funny. I was down here for a while. I was just kind of talking to people. Do you know about Riverkeeper? And so I was, I think at a, I may have been in a no Keystone XL demonstration or something. Anyway, these, some old guys were parked on the beach. So they came up to me and said, you're that river, aren't you that Riverkeeper guy? I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, hell yeah, that's me. And I said, well, you know, since we're talking uh, we're thinking about creating a river keeper down here on the Matanzas. What do you guys think about that? I don't think they were going to say, like, oh, hell yeah. They were like, I say stay your goddamn ass back up there in Jacksonville. We don't need you down here causing all that trouble. You're nothing but a troublemaker. You're out here right now. You probably, this is all about stopping beach driving. I said, well, do you know? No, this is a Keystone XL. Hell, it's all the same. So I told her, well, I'm going to put you down as you think it's a bad idea. I'm going to put you down in the no column. You don't need a goddamn river keeper. And I just laughed. I'm like, goddamn, I misread that. I thought those guys were like, oh, hell yeah, Neil. I followed you for years. Hell yeah. Stay your ass back up in Jacksonville. <laughs> So there you go, man. There you go. There's your little bow right yeah, there. Yeah, there's the bow. <laughs> Fuck you, Jack. Stay the hell up where you came from. <laughs> so that was fun to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to put you down in the no column, Mike. <laughs> Maybe. Well, you should stay your ass up back in Jacksonville. Fuck it. Fucking Jacksonville. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that's good stuff. But so you're talking about somebody who, you know, has the perseverance and the grit to just keep with it, you know. That's what inspired this interview. I yeah. I love listening to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope if you've listened this far, thank you so much. Um, we're gonna sort of round it out here. Um, that is Neil Armandjohn on the Floridiana podcast. My name's Andre Delena. This is Mike Lagacy. I'm going to say one thing before you wrap it up. One, I have one personal story I have with Neil Ermanjohn. Okay. It's back in the early aughts. He hired a band I was in called the Palm Valley String Band to play. His, he had his annual oyster roast up in Jacksonville. And I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think I ever felt cooler than playing like bluegrass music at this oyster roast for, for like that crowd. You know, it was like kind of like the Jacksonville elite and some old fishermen you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, uh, like all the, the the Sierra Club and all the all the wild hippies and the crazy art people. Like it was one of the most enjoyable things. And it, I, what it what it spoke to to me and what I kind of always kind of kept my I knew his name after that forever was he was definitely a he's a uniter. Like he brought people of all kinds of varying backgrounds together for these individual causes. 
in the face of all of this rejection. Yeah. Here's what I got to say about that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the point of this podcast, but that's how I feel about it. You know, yeah. like it's, I'm pretty well, inspired by it. I think that that what's interesting is that ties back into, um, you know, the the kind of people that he talks about that that not just sort of convinced him to become more activist, but who he's obviously modeled himself after. Maveen, you know, in the fight for Atlantic Beach was able to pull together a lot of sort of disparate types, you know, like the, he, he talks about it in the interview, um, whether or not that makes it into this cut, I'm not really sure, but, um, but he, t- he did actually talk to me a little bit more about Maveen, um, and you know, what she did is, uh, all the rednecks sort of threw in with her because, mm-hmm. because they saw just destruction of the, of that dune Nana. Mm-hmm as a uh, an assault on beach driving and they wanted to be able to drive their trucks down mm-hmm. on the beach and go you know surf fishing and you know and all that kind of stuff and so i think that speaks to that that idea of being able to bring together sort of all these disparate interests that have this one thing in common right. um or you know the care about things that all kind of lead back to the same thing you know mm-hmm. i think ultimately that's that is probably what the you know the entire job entails is just like finding that sort of common ground and bringing all those people together at the same table. I think it's cool that you played music for those people. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking like the idea of beach driving could be a Floridian podcast, like like interviewing oh, yeah. people about their opinions on it. Yeah. Because I'll tell you my opinion just while we're here. I think it's extremely important. And I know that it's not at best, uh, the environmental opinion on that isn't always the case. And I mean, it doesn't, doesn't always agree with me. But I think that what happens is, like you said, like, like so those folks, whoever the folks were with Mavine, like, kind of banding together, uh-huh. like, beaches can become exclusive to the people who own the property right behind the dunes without it. So right. to have access to it allows people to see the value of it and then to protect it. And I know it's a, it's not always the, hottest environmental sort of a ca- counterintuitive way to it to it yeah, yeah environmental activism without that access you don't have nearly Edu- as many people environmental education yeah 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 so anyway i think that's interesting but it'd be interesting to, you know how we did that florida folk festival that still needs to come out yeah of like where the festival was it's was the character yeah I wonder if something like beach driving could be your character that's something we can explore absolutely like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i think that's a brilliant idea mm-hmm. um yeah so this is our interview with neil armenjohn uh I just want to say thank you again for listening. Um, if you made it this far, any music you hear in this episode has been created by Mike Legacy. What do you got going on, Mike? Uh, nothing. Thank you for letting me talk on the mic. Not sure if it was a good idea or not, but I sure enjoyed having conversations. I think it was a great idea. I, I think you edit can... me to sound smarter than I am. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the whole point of posting the thing. Actually, I'm going to edit myself as well to make you sound really, really smooth. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, this is the Floridiana podcast. This is Andre Delena and Mike Legacy. Yeah, I'm gonna. Cheers. Cheers, man. <laughs> All right.